You're listening to The Agile CTO, a podcast geared toward technology professionals, disruptors, and thought leaders. This show will aim to cover industry trends, new technologies, the life of a CTO, building dev culture, stories from some of today's leading CTOs, and so much more. If you're looking for conversations centered around where the industry is going, this podcast is for you. Let's get into the show. Welcome back to the Agile CTO, everybody. My name is Guy Coleman, and we have a fantastic guest with us here today, someone that's overlapped with Alan in a previous role. But before we get into that, Alan, how are you today? Yeah, good. Thanks, Guy. Excited for, for today's chat. Yeah, how are you? Yeah, I'm well. I'm well. It's Friday. Uh, maybe it's Friday when you listen to this, but it's Friday for us when we're recording it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I'm really excited to get into today's episode, actually. We're speaking to Karen Nadas, and I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, Karen. So excuse me and just correct me if I've bastardized that. But Karen Nadasson, who's the, 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 the chair of the board of directors of the e-commerce forum of Africa, as well as the PayU CEO. So welcome, Karen. Thank you for being here. And uh, tell us a little bit about you and what you do at PayU. Awesome. Thank you, Guy. Hey, Alan. Uh, it's really exciting to be here today. So my name is Karen Nadasson, or if you were Indian, you'd pr- you might pronounce it as Nadasson. Uh, I am Apologies. currently, <laughs> you know, <laughs> no one seems to get it right. So yeah, I, I don't take offense anymore. Um, so I'm the CEO of uh, PayU South Africa. PayU is a global financial technology company. We're a payment service provider. Um, so our space is essentially digital payments. It used to be e-commerce payments, but these days, you know, pretty much everything is digitized. So dig- digital payments. Um, yeah, we've got about 2.5 billion consumers, 400,000 merchants, um, and we're in 52 markets around the world. That's incredible. That's uh, 52 markets. That's a massive reach, right? So I don't think it's just a South African company. You can say that with any sort of honesty. It's global at this point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, I'm the CEO, as I said, of PayU South Africa, but PayU itself is a global oh, right. company, and uh, we have offices um, around the world, Latin America, Eastern Europe, India, uh, parts of Africa, and um, our strength really is in emerging markets. And the vision is really to drive um, a financially inclusive um, uh, sector, payment sector. I mean, in that sort of fintech space in Africa, not that we're a significant player in that, but it's sort of everywhere you turn, it is just like booming and going crazy. So you must be quite uh, central to that to that fun and what's happening there. What, what, you know, what's the sense from you and how South Africa plays in sort of the, the broader African play? And yeah, what, what's the last couple of years been like? It sounds like it's only getting more and more interesting. Yeah, I mean, I've been in payments for quite some time now. I won't say exactly how long, <laughs> but I think it's like around more than 10 years now. Yes. Um, uh, it's, it has certainly um, changed considerably and it's ever evolving. Um, and I think the, the, the financial technology or the FinTech and payment space evolves as Africa evolves. Has we laid down infrastructure? Has we start to move from 2G to 3G to 4G to 5G? Essentially, has you know we start to digitize um, from and a South Africa versus the rest of Africa perspective? I think the game is certainly changing. The fintech investment, the VC capital, uh, most of the startups used to actually come out of South Africa. Um, and that has changed in the last few years. There's certainly a few, a few um, really interesting companies 
in Nigeria, uh, Kenya, um, that are attracting significant amount of capital. So it's becoming more competitive. Um, we now, of course, we've got the Africa, so African free trade area, uh, that is essentially looking at you know the African Union and how do we digitize and facilitate um, across cross-border payments um, across Africa. So there's a lot more room to work and grow together in Africa. So it's it's an incredibly um, dynamic and interesting space uh, to be in. Now, there, there must be some serious technical challenges into, make, into making that work in, in sort of the African context. Maybe there's some something you can share with us about that journey for, for, for you guys? So sort of the technical challenges that you faced in sort of getting to where you are now. Yeah, sure. So I think in, in South Africa is, is a little different, different to the rest of Africa, right? Because you have a significant amount of the population that is banked. So the figure you'll see quoted quite often is around 80%. Um, and that has been um, expedited by the whole grant system where a number of consumers have been given bank accounts. So even though we have 80% um, bank, the, 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 the number in all uh, practical terms in terms of usability is actually far lower than that, right? So that, that's the one part. You also have um, just a, a, a from, from if we're looking at it from what we an LSM level, just a different type of consumer base, different type of consumer base, different infrastructure um, historically in South Africa, um, and things are changing now to be a lot more um, inclusive. But this is essentially what you had: you had better infrastructure. When you look at other parts of Africa, that was that was actually not there. So specifically, of course, if you look at, at Kenya. And um, it was vastly different, but that also provided the room for innovation. And we know one of the, the, the biggest innovations there being in PESA, which worked really, really well with the unbanked population um, and having this, this wallet system and solved significant issues there. So I think that Africa um, is just so diverse in the, and, you, and there are so many different types of solutions um, so many players. So you you don't have. Whereas in Europe, you might have just like a, um, not not all of Europe, some parts of Europe, a card market, a debit credit market. Or in the US, um, it's quite different. You have such a wide range of payment solutions uh, to navigate through in African markets, and that is also one of the difficulties. Um, global corporations or corporations in the Western world would have had in entering the African market because it's just, there's just so much and it's so diverse. Yeah, and I imagine aside from you know, the broad spectrum of, of unbanked and the user base um, you know, being so diverse, I imagine there's also the challenge of people, and I hear this often around entrepreneurs, whether they be European, American or South African, they don't, you know, you can underestimate the, the variety of user base in Kenya to think that you can just start something in Kenya mm. or just expand yeah. this market. It's, you really need uh, almost local entrepreneurship and local yeah. startups to understand it and actually make it work. I mean, you seeing yeah. that as well, it's not a case of actually some South African yeah. startups just going over the border and it working. It's like time and time again, it's just fail, 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 because it really requires the local yeah. entrepreneurship. Is that right? Absolutely, and that's exactly why I quit Mpeza. And uh, you know, it is well known, and I think it's one of the biggest wallets in the world. 
and uh, it, it solved problems by understanding the local market, understanding the local market, the issues, the people. Um, and there's a wide range of things to really consider, right? Because if you, if you, if you just generally think about e-commerce um, or digitization of, so electronic payments, the, the first thing is actually, you know, the goods, the education to actually provide some type of e-commerce solution that people are going to use. Then you've got to yeah. think about, well, how do people shop? Do they have laptops? Are they going into offices? Do they have, you know, how are they, what are their lives made of? And generally you'll find they're actually accessing the internet via a mobile phone, right? But that mobile phone is not necessarily a smartphone. Things have changed now, but at that time, of course, it wasn't. So yeah. you, so when you, you know, delivering a solution, those are the types of things that you've got to think about. You also have to think about data, data costs, um, um, affluency in the population, um, so many different aspects, and the, it's quite a complex um, uh, solution to provide. Having, you know, if you're in the Western world and you're trying to think, bring something from there and 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 transport it, doesn't always work because there's so many other aspects that you've really got to consider. And you'll find, you know, some people are um, not only just accessing it via USSD on a phone that is not a smartphone, but cost of data is something that is really high. Um, they're, they're kind of living um, on a very small amount of money. Um, so, you know, to be able to actually make those. So those are the things because e-commerce pay and, and payments rely on those things. Accessibility, infrastructure data. Once you actually purchase something, how is it going to get to you? Yeah. You know? Yeah, so there's so many, there's so many aspects to really consider. Yeah, you know, and, and, and you mentioned the complexity of the African market and, and, and how, how many different uh, mechanisms you have to consider in this market compared to maybe a more Western uh, card-focused market. That sort of speaks to me uh, in terms of the agile CTO, sort of what we what we talk about a lot on this 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 podcast is the ability to to effect change quickly, and try things and experiment and iterate, and you guys must have gone through or are still going through and continue to go through so many different experiments and iterations. I'm I'm interested to know in your your sort of process on how you guys decide on going down an avenue pulling back and realizing it didn't work and then going somewhere else. What is sort of your process on, on in, in that regard? Yeah. So, um, you know, the one critical thing I would say is that when I started off in technology many years ago and you had to create a business case, you had like years to prove this. You might have had like, okay, break even in like year two, year three. <laughs> and these days, it's just the game has changed. And Alan, you're laughing because I'm sure that you resonate with this. This year, it's like yeah. you have um, you have to break even in that first year. So you have to be, um, I just, the pace of not only change, but innovation has just increased so, so much. And there's just so much more expected. Um, the one negative part of that is that you might actually um, overlook some really good use cases and not give it a chance. Like yeah, move, right? on, move on too quickly. Yes, but from an agile CTO perspective, as you mentioned, you want to fail fast. That's the that's the mantra, right? So you want to try different things, and you want to fail fast. You want to learn, and you want to you want to keep moving forward. But it just depends because if you do it in an agile manage, manner. Then the opportunity to learn is a lot bigger 
then kind of going big bang, I've, you know, I'm not actually open to change. I've not deployed this thing and I'm not kind of changing, but I'm not really making any money, but I'm not actually learning. So I think that the model, that agile model is extremely, extremely important. And being open to, obviously you need to understand the risk, you need to do your homework, um, but also being open to change gears um, and learn. You know, so I think that the, the best thing is to yeah to have an open mind and learning model. So that's really something that has helped us. Um, we so because we're in different markets, we tend to leverage of that, which is really important. Being able to have just an open learning environment and and learn from the other areas that uh, may have gone through the same journey. So we often look to Latin America, to India, what has actually been um, done there that is, that it has worked really really well. And what were the conditions for that? Because I think it's really important to understand the conditions for something that works in one place and then the transferability yeah. of that, you know, yeah. because you want to make sure it's applicable. And then you look at the South African trajectory, you know, and when, when is the right time to put this there? So I think learning other markets and then listening, listening to all our clients, listening to our merchants, understanding their pain points. And we, we know that one of the biggest pain points is um, access into very challenging markets that they might not have the knowledge about, like you know, in Africa, um, that are so diverse. So putting people in those markets, gaining insight. Uh, we currently have a single uh, technical platform that we've built, that the local markets integrate into. And the great thing about this is that it solves a great need with our merchants because they're looking at a single um, access point, but in that, we don't move away from the localization that we have in all the markets that are plugged in there. I mean, and I imagine even even having a sort of rich learning, being able to go from one market to another and learn from others that are similar and you know, sort of understanding the parameters that it worked to see if it would apply. I imagine even then, it doesn't always uh, transplant well because of a cultural difference or because of political issues. I mean, do you find that as well? Or is generally these days, yeah. Technology, technology at the same affluency level, and or is there culture playing out as well? There are so many different factors, and um, as you say, yeah, transferability is it doesn't happen in a black box. Um, I think also, yeah. you know, we we have to start looking at, at things as as interconnected and complex. When you have that mindset, you know that you you know I'm gonna I'm going to look at this as much as possible, align it to my market. I'm gonna try it in small bits, and I'm going to see. And yeah. I think it's also, it's important to go narrow and wide because there's a lot of dependency on on other aspects, as you say. It could be cultural, it could be um, uh, policy, political. There's so many other aspects that could of course something to work in one market uh, that won't in another market. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's, it's important to ensure that you you go wide and you understand those aspects. Yeah. Well, the, the actual. Not giving too much information has to. I mean, I can give you actual examples, but yeah, you know, I think you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the reason I was laughing earlier was actually, um, yeah, you know, sort of reminiscing back on yeah you know, when when we started in tech, realizing that that was our overlap was my first job in tech as a junior developer. I think it was around the same time as almost your first job in tech back in 2002 odd. Yeah, and thinking don't about sales, that's 20 years. <laughs> don't tell them, man. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry, you can edit that up. <laughs> but, but that far back, actually thinking back to my mindset then around tech and product and 
and what agile meant back then. And um, yeah, you know, I was laughing because yeah, we're far cry from then, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, agile then was literally waterfall in stages. <laughs> you know, it was no, like it was two, uh, stage implementation, actually doing a whole, you know, yeah, building the whole thing, and then you're building phase two and phase three, and <laughs> so it actually was wasn't agile at all, you know. Uh, we didn't have like a night like MVP, for instance, wasn't a thing, you know, um, taking big risks, which is also really controversial because when you're working in an organization, how much appetite is there for risk? You know, so for the ordinary kind of like CTO to go, hey, I'm going to I'm going to take this going to be risky and I might lose 10 million. I think it's it's quite rare to find yourself in that situation. So now we're, now we're talking about sort of going back in time and your overlap there at Jam Warehouse. I'm keen to explore a little bit of your past and some of your earlier roles and, and maybe let's go a little yeah. bit more into your overlap at Jam Warehouse, maybe what it is you how, how it is you guys, or what it is you guys did together. Presumably, I can see your background is heavily involved in business analysis and Alan, I think yours was also at the time, right? Well, yeah, my, where we overlapped, I think I joined first job straight out of Varsity 2002 as a junior dev at um, Jam Warehouse at the time. Man, that was a great couple of years and i think within six or so months of me joining i think karen you joined in a in a qa capacity and and there was like early early days of early dev and early qa and and understanding how that sort of dynamic worked in in that setting um i think we overlapped for a, a couple of years there and then i i started my journey towards the uk with them and then i think karen you moved on somewhere around that same sort of time but i think we overlapped for about a year and a half and i think we even lived in the same complex in um Rondebosch and albion for a, for a time yeah, yeah uh, we did yeah we are <laughs> uh, we were early early um early colleagues and karen was i'm um, testing some of the shit that i was writing it was not fun <laughs> but, but no it was good it was good <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> So we were, um, okay. yeah, okay. I, that is actually it. It's really at the early stages of our careers. So I was, this was my second job, but my first job only lasted like a few months because that company, this was, this was actually, so we got our first jobs just in the year of 9-11. So this was a very, very yeah. tricky year for any startup or any company that was um, looking at like investment coming in and writing on that investment and financing uh, a company based on, the, on that investment. And so the first company that I joined was also a startup. Um, they hired me out of university after I finished my degree, I started working there. And they actually went went bust and, and retrenched a whole host of people. I don't think they exist anymore um, mm. because their investment was not gonna come in from the US. Right. And, so, and then I joined Jam shortly after that in September. So Alan must have been there for yeah a few months already. Yeah, I think I'll, um, I joined Jam. Yes, you must have been there. So, um, so I actually was a Java developer and I, I wanted to learn everything. So I, I did some like Java development. Um, I did some testing. Uh, remember we had the feature system at that time. I started some analysis for a really big project. And then I started... Um, to yeah i worked at jam i did some qa i think towards the end i did some analysis and and at that time i also um i i did a second degree at uct and i was doing object-oriented programming and design at that time because i hadn't actually done anything in on um uh, not much.net 
when I was in university. So um, that allowed me to get a really great um, opportunity at ShopRite, uh, ShopRite Retail, um, because they were actually moving from the AS400 system to .NET um, using uh, BizTalk and MSMQ at the time, so wow. many years ago. Um, yeah. So that was my first sort of introduction into this really rigor rigorous transactional banking, I would say, flows, which in in hindsight, it's it, it's it's kind of connected me back, you know, to to pay you. I will get to that in, in a bit. But yeah, so this is this was the first bit, and then I worked there for. I just I, I literally just finished my degree, and. I was continued to be close with um, Alan and and he's what well, Christy and we had a few we had a small group of friends, hmm. and uh, we thought would well, we'll just um, go to the UK for a bit, you know, and all our entire group of friends we all went essentially it was like two months apart I think yeah yeah um, and I think Alan was up there and then myself and my partner we we then went we went up and yeah we all ended up there and we were there for uh, quite a long time. <laughs> and so, so yeah, quite a long time. And um, b because I had worked on this .NET project, I think that really helped me with my next role, which is a really fantastic role uh, as a business and systems analyst for my analyst for Microsoft. Cool. Yeah. So it was so, it was just it was so interesting, you know, how these that was the beginning of your time in London, right? Because you went over in you went over in the UK with Shoprite. You sort of ended that and moved with. Microsoft. I ended, yes, exactly, and I kind of moved straight into this um, Microsoft position. You know, I remember um, I remember being super jealous because at that stage, <laughs> now, obviously, deeper into the UK, and yeah, you know, because of nine eleven, good reminder on it because. So you had already, I think you were a year ahead of me in terms of studies, but my, my honors year was 9-11 uh, year. And I was like interviewing at Microsoft thinking that's going to be my first gig is leaving, leaving 20, 20, 2001 and, and final stage interviews at Microsoft and then 9-11 happened and then Microsoft was not hiring anybody from South Africa for a little while. And then that's how I landed up at Jam Warehouse. And then, and then a few years later, I'm in London, and then you're in London at Microsoft. I was like, "Damn it, Karen! Damn it!" <laughs> yeah. it was, it was, it was so I, I think it was the envy of all the guys in our group because yeah. uh, I remember Rob going, "The Microsoft." that's I've got it in my notes here. What's it like working at Microsoft? Because I mean, I had the same reaction. The Microsoft, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, so. and at that time, of course, it was like the company that you wanted to get into yeah. if you came yeah. out of tech. It's like that's where you yeah. wanted to go. Yeah. Um. So, well, the interview process was really, you know, it's it's always like you know you're it bulls on, and it just hap I happened to be there with the right skills. You know, I just worked on a major project. I'd just done object-oriented programming design. Um, I had the right skills. I just work on MSMQs, and this was the 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 software that we, they were kind of selling at the time. So right. I, yeah, it was just all worked out, all clicked. The interview process was really, really very rigorous, um, but um, I'm a very passionate person, you know. So it <laughs> it worked it worked out. Um, Microsoft working there was uh, it was fantastic. It was really great. I worked on the campus. 
um, I had lots of room for freedom. Uh, the job was really tough. I mean, as you can imagine, like the, the best skilled people in the world. So yeah. I think I had to, I had to work really hard. I had to up my game, uh, but I knew that and I was prepared to, to do that. Um, and I also had the skills at the time. It was, it was the right time, you know? And I think timing is really, really important. Um, so I had the, the right skills at the time to really contribute and to make a difference. And I got to work on global projects, which was really fantastic. Um, and I think, um, you know, I have some very uh, strange characteristics. So when, <laughs> when, I'm, when I'm focused and working on something, I just, I'm completely zone out. You can't disturb me, you know. I became yeah. I become agitated if you if someone knocks on my door. <laughs> so it's it's I'm trying to work on it. <laughs> but it's like you know, so I'm I'm like lost in my little world. And um Microsoft was actually probably the only company that I'd worked for that was extremely understanding on that. I could not function in an open plan office really well. And so I would, they would allow me to go and get lost on, I can't remember what floor it was, the fourth floor, book myself a room there and I'd go and sit and think about stuff. You know, I was doing systems analysis, I think at the time, um, and to the degree where you would hand it over and get coded. So you had to be really rigorous and think this through. You were putting all the, the intelligence into the, into the program, right? Amazing. Cool. So, and then later on, I no business analysis and systems analysis. But I think it was like you, they gave you the space to work yeah. as effectively as you, as you could based on how you were. And that's something that I really, really, really appreciated. Um, and everything was there. You could, you could go to the gym, you could go and you know, play papa, you could go race boats in the river. It was so beautiful. You could yeah. go play Xbox. Um, so you, you could, yeah, there are a lot of things. So um, there was a great, great, great food. And we sometimes had celebrity chefs over. Sorry, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a fantastic experience. I would, yeah. it was, it was just really, and um, yeah, I, I um, yeah, I, I loved it. I enjoyed my time there. And right. I think, okay, then, then that was that. Um, from there, I actually, so I had worked, I was working with someone at Microsoft who was making a move to VP uh, and right. who had asked me if I would join this team and they had a significant amount of work that um, they were doing. It was, this was in, this was specifically in um, industrial lubricants and services. Yeah. So working with this really odd chemists, you know, and getting into their minds to do oil analysis, which is also another fantastic role because this was based in, in Pangborn in this beautiful, beautiful mansion house, you know, that I would, I would travel up to um, so it was, it was, it was wonderful. It was like a dream. Um, and then from there, I just kind of, I made my way into different to global communications BP within the IT sector. And I got some really, uh, ITNS was actually led by Dana DC at the time. I think Dana DC is the, the CEO of the, the CEO of the Pentagon at some stage. Right. So. <clears throat> So, and also by later, after the after DC, by Jackie Wright. And Jackie Wright is a, uh, she is, you'll need to go and check it out. But I think she is the, um, she's one of the, the presidents of a really high position in Microsoft Global in the US. Yeah. And she, Microsoft allows you to take like a year or so and you work in these different positions and then you go back. <clears throat> now, 
these people were really critical at the time that I was working at Global Communications because they um, and my boss, Adam Henning, they got me into DNI, diversity inclusion, which really opened my mind. Um, it allowed me to look at um, like the, the path, the trajectory of other influential women in the industry, yeah. um, a woman in tech, which was like women was, it was also, you know, South Africa was rare. Yeah. Uh, going to the, to the UK was a bit broader, but I think it was like, I hadn't seen much of it, you know? Um, so, and, and they started to get me like invited to these these um, different forums. So it was really, and I think that was like a really critical time in my life to see opportunity, you yeah. know, what I could become, what I could do, what I could give back, you know, yeah. and to really start to think about, okay, what is it that I want to do? What is my what is my purpose? What do, what do I have? Um, and yeah, and I think that was it. I stayed there for a period of time and before I, before I knew it, I think like nine years passed in the UK. <laughs> yeah. And I was ready to come back to Cape Town. Yeah. You know? Uh, so, so that, amazing. That period really like speaks to like the power of mentorship, whether you've sorted out or if you kind of luck out in that you land up with these three or four, you know, even just one or two great mentors around that can yeah like you say broaden your mind to what could be and what actually exists and then you go okay that's that's actually entirely possible I, I you know yeah i hadn't thought of that i mean it sounds like you had like the a combination of a couple of people like that along the way yeah. which yeah changes the game cool the influential people who are making a massive difference in the world you know so yeah. earlier on in my career so that was just that was just unreal um, and you know, as I said, I got invited to forums and I got invited to talks of really powerful people and powerful women, which was so inspiring. Also, uh, global yeah. women awards, uh, seeing scientists, you know, who were women getting awarded for just breakthroughs in science and technology at that time. It just like really, um, yeah, it, it, it changes things for you, it just gives you perspective. You know, yeah. and the yeah. other thing is that these people were really accessible. Like Jackie would come around, and and I'm still in contact with her actually. Would come around, talk to us, you know, give you a hug. Really accessible, nice, good, kind people. You know, yeah. that were so powerful. Uh, makes it makes a huge difference, and it's also, I think, humbled me a lot and made me think about uh, even now. It, it, I always go back to this and go, what can I give? You know, what is my purpose and what can I give? How can I be used, you know? Um, yeah. And, 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 and then and that was it. So that was, that was all of UK and that was all done. And then I flew back to Cape Town and I landed in PayU. Brilliant. And it's something I've noticed in a parallel between you and Alan and your career paths, right? So, so Alan has a similar story about, you know, coming back to South Africa and, and seeing, a, seeing a, a way to uh, sort of do do more right give back sort of what can what can be done in the south african context based on what you've learned in the uk context and i and i mean it's 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 amazing to see sort of the type of individual that's able to do that because it's very easy to now go and capitalize on your opportunities in the uk and just grow exponentially there but the challenge then for you is uh, and from my perspective seems not to be that the challenge for you is okay now let me go and do the same that i've done here but back in south africa and bring the rest of the country along with me as best you can so that's that's it's a very interesting sort of parallel that i see there 
So yeah. in PayU, you've got a massive tech background. You've been a developer. You've been in the trenches. You sort of know how these things work. When was the last time you looked at PayU's code base? <laughs> oh my gosh. Um... <laughs> Can't remember here. I think it is actually before I became the CEO. <laughs> Once you get the title, you don't have <laughs> code base anymore. It's like I'll just trust you guys. Yeah, But I will say something though that when I did become the CEO, I mean, and this might just be because of my my journey. Um, I was extremely close with the the CTO, like and CEO and CFO, of course. But yeah. I was there in stand-ups. Um, I was like, you know, uh, very, very close because for us, our strategy was actually a product and technology strategy. That was our differentiator in the market. Yeah. So I had, to, and, and I, in terms of our CTO, I'd specifically chosen who our CTO was going to be. And I was very, right. I had to fight for this, you know. But for me, it was like I needed to be confident that our vision was going to align. Firstly, we were able to work very well together and and um, have confidence in, in technology abilities and the ability to, to think way ahead because that's what we needed yeah. to differentiate ourselves in the market, you know? So I would say Thanks. that I just, I remain really close um, to, the, to, the, to the technical team. I just, uh, yeah. For the first two years, and I it was just, yeah, every day. <laughs> yeah. Well, I imagine there's something really to that, that because of course you didn't land back in Cape Town and, and, and land as the CEO. If I, yeah, if I remember, your, your sort of path was also very product-led and in a way it kind yes. of shows you that the, the path yeah. to CEO is almost best done the closer you are to the customer and the yeah. closer you are to the customer, you're most yeah. aligned to the product. So your path was sort of product, 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 and it kind of, landed yeah. there yeah i mean I'm keen, I'm keen to hear how that sort of evolved um, absolutely so um at bp i was doing some um i had moved more from out of systems analysis to to business and, uh, analysis and then more strategic roles i did some project management some port portfolio management all sorts of i managed the bill of it which is something that dana dc created which is very very strategic and it's looking at investment into core business versus non-core and redistributing funds and but looking at the entire um, infrastructure um, you know and yeah. so it was a very wide lens in how massive organizations work from a technology investment perspective yeah when i got to south africa i i just i was like it was an interesting time of my life and i was just i wasn't looking for the big roles i was just looking for a role you know, mm -hmm. and I happened to speak to somebody who I'd worked with the ShopRite, who was now heading up a division at Naspers. And he said to me, okay, go speak to this company, pay you as a startup. Um, yeah, and, and see if, if they'll hire you. So I literally just took this this product role. Cool. And I was like, okay, fine. I, um, I had a lot of time. Uh, BP actually offered me something in Johannesburg because um, this was also after the Deepwater Horizon, they were looking at closing some of the offices. And so the big roles were actually going to be not in Cape Town anymore in Johannesburg. And I wasn't moving to Johannesburg, I was moving to Cape Town. So I was like, well, no, not really, you know. Cool. So anyways, I, I got into product and I was coming from working in Canary Wharf to yeah. Cape Town. <laughs> I mean, I felt like I was walking 
some days it was like, come on, is everybody walking backwards here? <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> you know? So it was, oh, frustrating is an understatement. It was like, um, yeah, pulling teeth. It was really difficult for me to, so culturally it was actually very difficult for me in this environment. Having lived in the UK for so long, I'd adopted their kind of culture, customs, uh, working near Wharf with so many people from so many diverse backgrounds. I think the pace, the excitement, yeah. the the pace of change, you know, it was just very different <laughs> to when I got here. It was, it was just so slow. So because I, I couldn't, um, I started doing everything. So I was like, first day I was in product, I was, um, and, you know, I just started taking a lot of stuff. And I, before you, before I know it, it's like I became an, a subject matter expert in, in that. And then I took over product. That was it. So I took over product, and um, in a short space of time, um, I also I also started to make changes um, uh, from a Scrum perspective because we weren't actually implementing it well enough. And I'd actually come from a massive, massive project um, that we we spent like fifty, I think it was fifty million dollars <throat> in in the six months of this project. Because yeah. we were um, looking at redoing uh, our CRM system and this entire, all the, the, all the seven entities that be beyond. So this was a massive project. Um, we were working with several different partners and the way we were managing these sprints were just like next level with yeah. several project teams. So when I came here, I was like, no, 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 <laughs> you know, we've got to change this, you know, <laughs> if we want to. And I think it was also, you know, I had other ideas in terms of, uh, I joined PayU because it was also an opportunity for financial inclusion, for instance. Uh, South Africa was really just, it was literally a card market. It was almost 100% just card. That is yeah. it. So you're just serving one portion of the population, and that was it. And so my first project was actually uh, alternative payment methods. So I started working on an EFT product. Um, I think we had one of the first, not the first in the market at that time. And then on the Discovery Miles loyalty thing, which was my thing which apparently had been unsuccessful in the past. And this was, if we did it in a few months time, it was successful. You know, we still maintain that partnership and we still operate online. From there, I had um, a, a pay you was, so NASPERS was reining in all their FinTech investments, right? And right. I didn't, and, and, and okay, and some of them were called pay you, some of them were not, we were called pay you, but we actually didn't know of any other pay yous out there. You know, right. it was like Bcash and all these different, and so they started to form it because they could see that FinTech was now starting to like, you know, really progress and online payments. And so they started to, to pull all these together into one global company. So before that, we were still, I was still in this little startup. Start to pull them all together. And as they did, I then took over the head of product for Middle East and Africa. So, I was now, my vote was a lot, but it wasn't just product, it was more like product um, portfolio management, pretty much all of that to start putting in things like ideation, uh, other processes in there. Yeah. And then um, later on, it was um, just like other, you know, working together with technology. Who always remain close with in terms of proving improving our cycle and at that time i think we, i mean we had some really really poor kpis we could only like deploy i don't know every month you know so we didn't have this um 
continuous integration, continuous development pipeline at that time, you know. So, and this was really, this was my bugbear. I was like, no ways, we, we have to get to that. But yeah. it depended on so many things, right? The architectural yeah. model that we had at the time, it was nowhere near modular. Um, the scrums that we were running were really, really poor. That there were so many different things that we had to go and change together, but we eventually did get there. Um, so we, so it was not just like looking at product process in isolation. It was looking at that, looking at tech, looking, putting them all together, and driving an efficiency for where we wanted to get to in the future. You know, um, and then and then um, after we had gotten to that point, it was okay. So now we need to start getting a little bit more technical in terms of our. Um, business cases. Yeah. When we create a business case, we need to have variables in there, all the financial variables. We need to understand the sales strategy. We need to, it has to be a proper, you know, five-year for, for, or forecast. Or even if you have to do a three-year forecast, but I, I want people to do their homework, not yeah. to just have brain thoughts, cut that, not to just have ideas, <laughs> you know, because everyone can have an idea because, you know, everyone's doing everything. So you can have an idea, but an idea Unless you do minimum homework, you're not going to get that anyway. So it yeah. was just all of that. So I then, I got married, I felt pregnant, um, and I, I went on maternity leave. And things started to really, really change at PayU at that time because um, NASPAS had, you know, kind of wanted this organization to be a look, they benchmarked, obviously, where it could yeah. get to. And as, was, as you know, I mean, it's an investment company, right? So wants to be very focused, wants to turn these businesses into profitable businesses. And this is not what PayU was. It was a startup and it had a very different mindset. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fail fast, but fail fast and don't make any money. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So they, they, they weren't disciplined, <laughs> you know? Right. So, so we needed to get really disciplined, essentially. And so I was on maternity leave, um, and this was the news that the South African business we were, we we need to now really shape up if right. we wanted to be part of this global organization, right? right? Um, so so there was a position for a new. There were two positions actually because they had two strategies. One was for Africa growth in Africa, expedite growth in Africa, which I'd actually started with. With the previous CTO, um, uh, started up in Nigeria and, and, and in Kenya. And then the second role was for the, the CEO position. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, Do I pause it seems, there? It seems, uh, <laughs> it seems you know, from your experience in the UK and going from like, Microsoft to BP and all those mentors and all those skills that you're know, coming back from Canary Wharf to Cape Town, it's, you know, it's kind of like bringing a gun to a knife fight. So I'm not surprised that, that that the path took you from product owner to CEO because yeah, like, like the the pace of where you came from and then all that arsenal and kind of all that ammo and mentorship just kind of just unleashed yeah. in whole town and it kind of I can I can just see exactly how that happened. So that's very cool. It was very college. Cool. Yeah, yeah. And this wake of chaos behind you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, actually it was. And I was you know, I didn't I wasn't I didn't have a partner, I wasn't married, I didn't have kids. I had time, you know. I would wake up at half past five in the morning and I would take a long cycle up the you know, all the way to um Camps Bay and back. That was my life. And I would get breakfast at like seven, seven thirty, and then I was prepared to work. You know, I think um, um, so. 
I think I think that's that's where our journeys have deviated the most because I remember that was the second time I was jealous of you going, damn it, Karen. I, I think I did at that stage, and I was up early, but for very different reasons. <laughs> yeah. But no, it's been fun, man. Yo. You know, looking at looking at what you've just mentioned to me, while I was listening to you, you you, you tell us a bit about that journey. Um, I was thinking of questions, and and every time I was about to interrupt you and ask you, you'd answer the question before I'd even gotten a chance to ask it. But I'm sort of interested in 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 sort of the technical side of it and how the changes you mentioned uh, continuous integration and continuous delivery, right? So that's something that you know we're driving in the tech space currently. It's a, it's a hot topic. It's it's something that's been around for a while, but. But the adoption of it, or the the adoption of the, the the sort of dogmatic view of it, and what it should be, or the holistic golden thread that that people need to follow to get true continuous delivery, which is being able to deliver software really quickly, and and being able to look into that that delivery and make decisions about it, and pivot quickly and fail fast, right? So I'm interested to know, sort of, did you get any kickback internally from your team? Because I think you find in most I think senior software teams, right? You'll have people that have opinions about things and you have people that'll go along with sort of trying new things in order to make it better. But you always find that bedrock of people that are like hanging on to the past and know this is how you do it and you don't want to change it. How did that go? How was that technical journey in your business? Did you have any of that sort of kickback? Yeah. So when I, so I was, I was actually uh, presenting. So I actually did a presentation to the team on why we need to change, right? So I did my homework. Um, and at that time, I would say I'm a, a bit more far removed now. Obviously at that time I was like really a lot closer to the team. So I was able to make certain recommendations based on my experience and knowledge at the time, which is unfortunately a little different and a lot poorer nowadays uh, when, it comes to when it comes to the technical aspects. But um, so I was actually, I was, I remember I was pregnant at that time. So I would, and this was just before the CEO role was up. So, the, so some of the guys from, from Poland and from the global team were actually there. So um, I had been, like I'd been talking about it, but I don't think anyone was really following what I was actually saying because they didn't know what I was talking about. You know, I think that's the really important aspect because I had information, I had knowledge, I had experience, which, and they were not there yet. And so I was, I was talking about something that was impossible to them, but I had already seen it before. So it wasn't impossible to me. And I realized that. And so it was really important for me to go into detail. And then it's also about relationship because I was not a relationship person. I was a uh, information knowledge person you know Gold. Uh, exactly and so I, I think I realized at the time hold on I, I have to bring people along on this journey and I also have to learn stuff from their side as well so I made a point to go um, speak to the CTO at the time speak to his right hand who later became my CTO um, and just and work a lot closely with them to understand you know, why are things this way? Um, why is our architecture built in a certain way? Why do we, you know, what else, what do we need to get here without even, without even talking about the whole um, uh, um, CICD or, or any of that, you yeah. know, what would, without the technical terms, what do, where, where do I want us to get to and why? Yeah. You know, and how do we, do we get there? And of course, this, I know what the answer is, you know, but it's a lot more complex than just that. Yeah. yeah. 
So, so I think that was it. So, so working, you know, with them together, we had so initially a lot of frustration, but I also think it, it took um, for their own learning, because our CTO had he went and he made sure he he read, he understood what it meant, um, and then he then be became a champion because he made me, he he got me to do the presentation essentially, and if you think about it, in like tech teams, in my experience, are always really close, right? So, and he was really close with our tech team. I was not, because I was always issuing orders, you know? <laughs> so making demands, nothing is good enough. So, so I really actually needed his support. That was the one thing. Um, and then he essentially became a champion for me. And then I presented back to them, including the entire, and he brought the team along to go through, okay, so this is what this weirdo is talking about. This is the stuff. And I'm actually on the same page as her, you yeah. know? Yeah. And so how do we, and we opened it up. And I think that's the most important, ignoring all the technical aspects, it's opening it up to the team, telling them why you need to change and where you want to get to and what is the importance of getting there. And for us, it was incredibly important because we wanted to deploy software a lot faster. We wanted to make changes a lot faster. We wanted input. And without changing, making the, the, the changes, even if it was going to take us two yeah. years, without making those changes, we would never get to this point you know so i think it was that a short term versus the long term path and and just working with everyone and getting aligned and on the same page more than than anything else that got us there yeah. and intentional yeah it is that i find i find uh, i think largely technical people are, are somewhat stubborn and it's a function of their career and the type of work that you do and, and the complexities around that so you're absolutely right. I think it's finding that 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 common ground, that buy-in to to say, no, I'm not dictating to you on why on doing this because I say so. There is a benefit to this, and it's almost like you need to bring them along that journey. You need to get them to feel like it's their idea and it's their baby, and it's and it's in the best interest to do it because ultimately CI/CD is in the best interests of of the development team. Right? It's there's less there's less complexity involved. There's more there's more ability to 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 have insight into what you're doing and making mm. sure that what you're building is actually going to be used, right? Yeah, more confidence and, in the release. Otherwise, someone's yeah, up at, yeah. someone's, someone's Ex the developer's waking up on Saturday morning to do something that he doesn't really want to do. And that, that, and that <laughs> was actually our lives. Our, it was very stressful because we, yeah. were, we were wanting to sign up some really big merchants. Um, and, you know, it was the stress of after hours being always available, uh, being there on the weekend, failed deployments, it was extremely stressful yeah. and we had to get Low to a conversation. Skin's crawling. Yeah, yeah. That's cool, great insight. Now, Karen, when we did our introduction, before we, we before we recorded this podcast, we had a previous meeting where we just kicked off and we had a bit of a meet and greet and a catch up. And you mentioned to us that you had met the president at some stage during oh this journey. Word. I don't think you'd raised, you, you haven't told us the story yet. So I'm keen to dive into that a little bit and just hear about Okay. where your head was on the day what what was the topic of the conversation just you know dive into that for us yeah 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 so, so that was great that was actually quite recent so that happened in march i think it was the 23rd of march this year cool. and i was invited to be part of the um this the sa investment conference essentially i was invited to that uh, but prior to that nasa was held their own uh, conference, digital conference, um, and we had some really interesting people, different panels. Um, uh, uh, Professor Moralwo was there, for instance, Arthur Goldstock, um, 
uh, Fabian Waite, who's the CEO of Naspers Foundry, the the um, the CEO of Take a Lot, so quite a few um, interesting people, including people from government. Um, uh, Minister Kumuzo was also there. So I was on a panel discussion um, about e-commerce and fintech, and I spoke on this. And then I happened to get an invitation to a private dinner the next day. Um, and this was a private dinner with the president and some really, really mind-blowing people way out of my league. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so and I, so so that's it. So this is how I ended up at this dinner. And our CEO Puti was obviously obviously there as well. Um, right. it, it was actually quite a small dinner. Um, I can't remember. It was like yeah, really small. I think it was like forty people because we still had some COVID COVID restrictions and, and that sort of thing still by March. Right. Yeah, so it was it was um, it was really exciting. I have to say, he is you really he is a person of presence, and he is also such a such a wonderful, humble person. So he comes, he came around, and he spoke to every one of his guests. Wow. You know, so as we all, all all got in, he made his way around. He stopped. He greeted everyone. He spoke to everyone. He asked me what I did. Um, you know, I said to him, I, I work for PayU and we're a fintech. And I mentioned some of our, our merchants and what we do and moved around. And then he came to, towards the end of the dinner. There was a seat that was empty across from me. I was like, well, why is the seat? Who would not come to this dinner? <laughs> I mean, like, if you followed me five minutes before, I'd be there, you know? But there were some seats intentionally left. There was uh, left for him so that he could move around. Oh, wow. And he came to have dessert across from me. And uh, yeah, he had fruit and it was so um, interesting. And, um, you know, he, he asked me, uh, we got to talking a bit more and he remembered what I'd said to him earlier about, you know, what I did, which I thought, my goodness, I mean, how do you even remember this? There's so many people here with, Obviously, everyone's got some type of, you know, an agenda. They, they want to talk to you about so many things, but you remember all these details about people that you've just met. So that was really, really, really incredible. And you really made such a good impression on me. And I think also just sure. um, the SA Investment Conference itself, I happened to go to that the next day and I was also there for the dinner, but this was now a thousand people, was also just mind, mind blowing. Um, yeah, and I, and I really, it gave me a, a different, um, yeah, just a different perspective on the investment in South Africa and his plans. And amidst all the negative negativity, there is still a really deliberate effort um, to move forward positively and to make some considerable changes in the country, which is um, something I, I think personally I also really needed to hear. Yeah. Well, I, I, I had, I don't know, at least four or five other questions around that trip and also... Uh, not, not specifically that visit, but what it means for South Africa and pick up on a thread on what Guy touched on earlier about both of our implicit reasons and thinking to return to South Africa. Um, I don't know, maybe there's another podcast episode in our, in our future because I wouldn't mind unpacking, yeah. I wouldn't mind unpacking sure. another layer of that yeah. around the day. Um, I, I mean, I, I think our episode's uh, approaching an hour at this point, but yeah, yeah I'm loving it. Um, is it? Yeah, I mean, the yeah. one really interesting thing that was on our uh, digital conference was Honorable Minister Kamudzo, who she talk, she spoke about the, the digital communications and digital strategy, and of course the whole spectrum yeah. um, auction, 
and uh, 5G uh, deployment. And also, yeah. you know, this the investment in laying down uh, 5G and, and better infrastructure in, in the townships. And I think um, it was just wonderful to see things that are actually being actioned and done, you know. And these are really going to be yeah. important aspects for us to move forward. So um, it was just good to see some very specific things happening. And then uh, Patrick Sushan, I don't know if I'm saying his name correctly, and you can cut it out if I'm not. But he was there presenting at the SA Digital Conference, but he is like one of the most incredible, um, I would say, medical kind of experts in the world. He lives in California. He is reinvesting, investing now in South Africa. He's putting down, he wants to have like a cancer research center, a center in Kauteng. Um, there is, are these um, cancer, um, I would like, uh, I don't know what you call them, but they units so there are these medic medical kind of units that can diagnose very specific and and, and target specific um cancer and is having early this screening. third one early screening. yes exactly yeah. yeah so there's so all of that kind of stuff but it also comes with uh infrastructure capacity you wants to do like some data mining in relation to medical research but you've got to put on the infrastructure yeah. and stuff for that so there's a hell of a lot of investment that, that he is encouraging back into our country which is really fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. Brilliant. Uh, Karen, it's, we, we're coming to the end of the episode now, so I think we've only got time for maybe one last question, and it's part of our what we call our quick fire round. So I don't want you to think about the answer for too long, but what is your latest must-read, must-watch, or listen, yeah. or whatever, and why should our audience be interested in that? So my latest... Okay, so... Um, must watch and this is not latest but i really like the series and it's called black mirror and i've watched it a few times and so i'm sure you guys yeah, yeah. have watched it <laughs> yep and then i have two books so the one that um is i think important for any south african to read specifically in relation to the african free trade area is the, the book by professor chilezi morala and that's called closing the gap the fourth industrial evolution in yeah. africa the other one, Alan, and this might be a good one for you to read, and I did this in my studies. Um, I just wrote a thesis on open banking, and I, and I use this here. It's called Creating Great Choices, and this is by Jennifer Riel and Roger Martin. And this is about integrative thinking. So uh, it's just, you know, you know, you have blue ocean strategy, whatever. So it's kind of similar, but it also tells you how to... Um, work with tension and come up with innovative solutions and i really love the book and i actually have a copy so yeah in creating great choices creating great choices mm -hmm. by real and martin jennifer real and roger martin yeah brilliant well karen that brings us to the end of the time we have for today and we don't want to keep you much longer you're incredibly busy thank you very much for making the time i think we've got three or four more episodes here so we'll probably line them up over the next couple of weeks or so. <laughs> um, and uh, lastly where can our guests or our listeners look for you find you hear some more information about pay you or um, invite you to be a panel guest potentially <laughs> <laughs> okay so i mean i'm if you, look, you? if you look for um if you google me you will you can you can connect to me easily via linkedin um that's i'm um, easy to find and then pay you pay you pay.co.za or pay.com will tell you everything uh about pay you i'm also you can find me on the efsa and the e-commerce forum south africa i'm also the chair of the e-commerce forum so you'll be able to find me there but but linkedin is probably the best route to get hold of me and to bypass my pa <laughs> brilliant yeah. 
Well, thanks very much. This has been another episode of the Agile CTO. We'll catch you again on the next one. Awesome. Great talking to you. At Hayfully Software, we build dev teams that deliver and fix those that don't. Dev teams fail to deliver all the time for countless reasons, from lack of skills to barriers and culture, from politics to process, from silos to egos. Whatever the reason, it's time they deliver. This is why we exist. From enterprise to startups, we craft high-performance dev teams focused on end-to-end delivery. Visit Hayfully Software at OutsourceHS.com to learn more. You've been listening to The Agile CTO. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening with Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to leave a quick rating of the show. Simply tap the number of stars you think the podcast deserves. Until next time.